This episode is dedicated to Jordan Norton for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. This is Sam, and this is Fight Study. Today on Fight Study, we have martial artist, writer, activist, and former academic, Madeline May. Welcome to the show, Madeline. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So you've had quite an interesting political, academic, and martial arts journey. So let's start chronologically. Tell us a bit about your background and how you got involved with politics. I always joke with people that I was born a communist uh, (laughs) (laughs) because that's just how my nature was. I was like, And I noticed it was my nature because it was not the nature of my family. I was raised in a very conservative Jehovah's Witness family, which is a very high control group. I call it a cult that's very focused on Armageddon and only, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses survive. So nobody else matters. And I was the little kid that was like, but what about the people here? What about this? What about the animals? Uh, But like very, very concerned with the rest of the world. And then when I rebelled and left the religion in like my tween years, I was angry because my childhood was also pretty abusive and all of that rage came, was coming out. And I found like rock and roll music and alternative that quickly like morphed into me finding punk rock. And that was, that was like where, like a place for my anger. And so the, the, one of the first bands that I got into was Dead Kennedys, who was really political and, um, you know, I guess that was probably like the mid nineties. Um, and I was like, Oh, wow. Like I'm angry and there's actually <laughs> stuff to be angry about. This is righteous. Um, and so I started reading more. I had a really influential history teacher when I was in uh 10th grade who had us leave, leave our books home or textbooks home. And he taught us out of people's history of the United States by Howard Zinn. Um, and also lies. My teacher told me, I learned a lot and um, I was so focused on like leaving the town I had grown up in and leaving my abusive family that I like was getting more involved with politics. I would um, take the train into Philadelphia, which was the closest city. And I would go like I met some activists and I would go to protest sometimes. And I just knew as soon as I got out of high school, that's where I was going. I was going to move to Philadelphia and I was going to be an anarchist. Aren't your family members also in unions as well? Yeah. So, well, my father was, he, he was, his father was my grandfather on my mother's side was, um, but because Jehovah's witnesses are supposed to stay politically neutral, he was never much of an activist, not supposed to even vote. I've never saluted the flag in my entire life, which, you know, (laughs) good for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah. And, you know, to be honest, I, he was a, he's a part of the construction union. He's a carpenter. Um, and I did not regard that as anything radical or progressive or even liberal because my perception of my father was that he was very conservative. Um, you know, after he left the religion, when my mother divorced him, he would vote Democrat or whatever it was that, you know, the union voted for. Um, but he would still like say the N word in passing. And I remember arguing with him about NAFTA when I was in high school, because I lived with him in high school, you know, and he would make um, comments about Mexicans coming over and taking jobs. And I would like try to like 
argue with him about like the, the, you know, the economics of that and, and why that was happening. Um, so I saw my dad as very conservative um, in spite of that union background. And then you were planning to move to Philadelphia and become a full-time anarchist. So what happened from there? Um, I did it. I, I moved, to, <laughs> moved to Philadelphia like three days after I graduated high school. Um, I had found, I'd come across like a land trust that exists and still exists in, in West Philadelphia and a house was opening. So I found some housemates and put together what was effectively a punk house. It was like me and six or seven dudes um, <laughs> and just kind of spent a year having a childhood that I didn't have. You know, I was just like, and I was still straight edge then. So just hanging out, going to punk shows every night and uh, riding my bike all over the place and being a kid. Um, and then, after, and like, you know, going to protests a lot, that was my life. And it was, it was really fun. I felt like I had met some other weirdos for the first time in my life that like I had a lot of people around me and that was new and exciting um, to have. Um, and I ended up uh, going to, in 1999, I went to Chiapas with a couple of other activists to go be a human rights observer in the Zapatista communities there. Um, they were at that time, like Western activists could come and you'd, you kind of stay in like a hut on the side of the village. You're not really participating directly in things, but they, they had found that like towards the end of like when all the atrocities were happening in Guatemala in the eighties, that once they kind of started like white activists came with cameras that that reduced the number of deaths. So that's kind of, we, what I went down there for, for like four or five months. And we, you know, with our, with our cameras just on the side there. And, and that was probably the biggest political education I'd had because, um, you know, I went there and I was like, I'm going to go, you know, I thought I was going to go be a revolutionary. I was 19. I was like, this is it. And and while I was there, the battle for Seattle happened. We were like, oh shit, it is kicking off. <laughs> <laughs> and Y2K happened. And then they had to like move into the mountains because I thought there was going to be a military offensive. For people who are too young to remember Y2K, it was this time in 1999 where a lot of people thought that the turning of the clock to the year 2000 would bring around like all this chaos because of computers not being ready for that. And what's wild is that as ludicrous as that sounds, more people believed in that than people today believe in COVID. Right. That's how much things have changed. Yeah. I hadn't even thought of it and that to compare those two things. You're right. So then uh, Seattle was kicking off and then what happened? I came back from Mexico and then there was like the next, there, this was the time when they talk about like, there was a lot of convergence, like um, and the, the uh, anti or alter globalization movement was happening and there, there'd be like, oh, there's um this international like meeting of elites that would happen. Cause so like the battle in Seattle was the WTO. The next, the next one that I went to in DC that when I got back in the spring was the IMF and the World Bank. So, you know, there was like a lot of anarchists organizing at the time, um, but it didn't, it's so strange for me to look back at that period now because there wasn't really like the internet where everything you do is tape recorded. And documented. And we all look at ourselves doing these things constantly. Like, it's strange to be like, oh man, like neoliberalism, like when people are just like catching on, I'm like, yeah, we've been yelling about this <laughs> for a long time, but it was such an echo chamber. It was such niche knowledge kind of because because we didn't realize you know the like people everybody didn't have cell phones yet when that was happening like we didn't realize to the extent of how interconnected we would become through globalization and the technologies that would like 
help it move forward um, for better or for worse. But yeah, so I was I participated in some of those protests, um, and then um, I was I was part of the anarchist community, and then I got kicked out. Uh, well, for doing a racist thing, uh, which I don't deny, um, and like it just the way it was handled was. I think people, this is like another total aside, but in, in radical communities, it's something that we still grapple with. Like, how do we hold people accountable and how do we make spaces that are like truly like safe and, um, you know, but that like there's, there's room for people to grow from their experiences, you know, instead of sort of being um, labeled and blacklisted for the rest of your life. So because the way it was happened, nobody felt safe around me anymore. Um, so I left activism because people wouldn't talk to me. I was banned from people's houses. It was like, it was pretty ugly. And also I didn't realize at the time that I had PTSD from the child abuse and stuff. So it really like triggered my attachment trauma. So I just said, fuck it and left and just went, that's when I went and started working in restaurants full time and became a cook. Do you want to just leave it like that? Or do you want to explain a little bit about what happened? So what happened was I host, I was making a fundraiser for the anarchist newspaper that I was participating in. It was my turn to do the fundraiser and I organized a party and I themed the party a pimps and hoes party because that was very popular in pop culture then. And I did not realize how racist and classist that was. Um, I like was just like, Oh, this is, you know, this is, people are going to dress sexy. Like people are going to switch gender roles in their clothes and it's going to be a fun party and we'll raise a couple hundred dollars for the printing. And I, I like didn't understand what was messed up about it. Um, but then I ended up getting uh, fishbowled. <laughs> so, what do you mean fishbowled? Uh, they had a meeting at the community center, and they sort of, sort of, if you're fishbowled, everybody sits around you in a circle, and then one by one, they all tell you like what you did and how you hurt them by what you did. This is something I've talked a lot about in my own community with Southpaw and stuff, where like being edgy or trying to be funny can easily delve into that area and people don't even realize it because even the term right it's right on the edge is edgy for a reason right and it's like people aren't always aware of what is on the cusp of and so just don't be on the cusp right right why i'm bringing this up is because in that type of radical scene anarchist scene i think being edgy is often very common and so it's something that didn't end with you it's still around and it's still something that people constantly have to talk to people about Yes. And well, you know, the, there was good that came out of it, even though I was like ostracized and it was really difficult. And when people were trying to figure out the accountability process, I, there were like one of the things to hold me accountable is to have like a reading group and everybody agreed at the meeting that like, okay, racism is all of our problem. Cause it was all like almost exclusively white activists. They're like, it's all of our problem. So we should do it. So I showed up for the meeting and nobody else did, <laughs> but like I did all the readings. And then I got more and more into it. It was like, I didn't go to college till I was older. And all of these people had been to like liberal arts college that were doing this and were like making the accountability thing and that were like upset about it and like pushing for it. So like, I did not know how much I didn't know. So that was sort of my introduction to like really reading a lot more deeply about racism and white supremacy and whiteness like that really like was uh definitely like an, a super eye-opening moment that like primed me for a lot more of my political education um later on in my life so in some ways i'm like 
grateful for it, you know. Um, it's you know, it wasn't totally negative, but um, well, I think a lot of people need something like that to even recognize that they were in an all white left space, right? I think a lot of people, especially if you're white, right, in that space, they don't even recognize that it's only white people there because that's just like water and fish and water, and you don't question it, it's just normal, right? Yeah, yep. And this is all before academia. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I tried a little bit after that to go to college, but I didn't, I was first generation. I took out the loans to go and, um, I went one semester and I did all right. But then, uh, the second semester nine 11 happened in the beginning of it. And then, so my job, like the, I was waiting tables, it just dried up. So i started having to work twice as many shifts and I couldn't, I, I stupidly had taken five classes and I was failing. So I just dropped out <laughs> and decided to just cook. And when you say first generation, do you mean like the first generation to go to college or the first generation to be born in the U.S.? Oh, first generation to go to college in my family. So they're like, I, I didn't know what I was doing <laughs> uh, at all. Um, so yeah, I decided to be a cook and that was like all I did. It was in some ways it was kind of free for a while because when you're a cook or most restaurant jobs, you work so much, you work at night that like you, you're kind of isolated from the rest of society in a way, because you like everybody else has off nights and weekends that you work nights and weekends. So it, it's in, all encompassing. Um, in some ways it was like a break to just be like, all right, well, I'm a cook. I like don't have a college education. I'm a cook. So I'm going to try and be a good person and cook. And that's all. Um, and I did that for a few years and I found it very difficult as a woman. I kept on like running into things that like in relationships and people, things that like got in the way of me trying to pursue this idea of having like a career and being a chef and stuff, you know, cause you can't just be a cook cause the pay is too bad. You have to have the goal of owning your own place or figuring something else out or else you won't last in the business just too much work and too poor paid. Um, but yeah, I went to, I went to, I decided to go to community college because the job wasn't very satisfying and, and I did really well. And then I transferred to um, the four year in, uh, in New York, in Brooklyn college, the city university of New York. That's where I finally got my degree in sociology. And it was like, like once I got there, I was like in my element and it was, it, it was awesome, awesome experience because um, like I was, I was very active in, in, you know, the the war in Iraq had started. So we were very active, like campus anti-war group. So you were back to activism again. Yeah, I couldn't say no. <laughs> it was like the mafia <laughs> just pulled you back in. And it was such a cool place. If you talk to anybody, I'm sure there's other schools like that are like this in cities, but if you talk to people that like, graduated from CUNY, there's like a special thing. Like it has like, you know, it, it's, it had a pretty radical mission, which was to like educate the working class sons and daughters of New York. And I knew so many incredible activists through there and, and professors who like took a, like a lower pay, which is funny because they, <laughs> my generation of academics could never even get a job, let alone choose lower pay, but like really loved and admired having working class students. Like most of my classes were full with like commuter students. Um, and the student body was just so diverse. And when I did campus politics and did stuff, there were so many situations 
that I was in that I was like as a white woman in a minority. And that was like such a huge education to have. And it normalized so many things for me that I don't think a lot of people can get. Um, a lot of like white people, like it's like an education that a lot of white people don't get um, to be able to be in like these um, intense intellectual spaces and political spaces and debate. And, and like, um, I think a lot of times like that, like when you talked about like the white activism where it's just the water you swim in and it's the default and you just assume that, that it's like you're, nobody's ever rocked your worldview. So you just assume that that is the worldview. And suddenly like to, to be in, to be in school in Brooklyn college and having these conversations and discussions in class and running for student government and working with so many different like people of color and like black students from like so many different countries and from the United States. And like, there's like, um, the campus was also like, there was like a ton of like Jewish students and Russian immigrants. And they're, they're, the, the student body was just so diverse that like you could not, I mean, all the students that I had classes with, we all changed so much throughout like our time there. It was, it was, it's really special. People like think their undergrad is really special. I feel very lucky to have gotten the education I did. A lot of CUNY people are in the Southpaw community. So uh, it makes sense now. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's, it's good. I like it. So along with CUNY people, there's a lot of people from the Philadelphia area that follow Southpaw and they all seem to know who you are. So somehow you must have gotten embedded into the activist protest scene there where they, you know, they seem to know you from protests or bake shops or bookstores or and see you kind of as a, a uh, mentor figure. So tell me about what happened after school. Well, I graduated. Um, I graduated college in December 2007, right when the uh, economy crashed. So there was like, hooray, I've, I've, I've graduated. This is a big deal. And then there was no jobs. And I like faltered. I ended like a relationship that I was in that was really bad. Uh, and I was supposed to be married that summer and called off the wedding. And I tried to get my footing, but like rents had gone up so much and I couldn't find work. I applied and applied and I was back working in restaurants. Um, so I finally decided to apply for PhD programs like a lot of my friends did at the time because it seemed like a good holding pattern um, until the the recession cooled off or whatever it was. And so I applied and I ended up moving down to Austin, Texas because I got accepted at UT Austin for a bit. Um, but then I came back to Philadelphia after four or five months because I, I, I was so passionate about studying social movements and democracy and, and the, the conservatizing force of professionalism and the nonprofit industrial complex. I was so, I was like, I want to build knowledge and use this knowledge to make our social movements for liberation stronger. And I got accepted to a PhD program that was funded. So in my head, that meant that like they supported my ideas and that is not the case with academia. Like I, I got accepted into the program, but that does not mean that <laughs> there's anything about academia that's really like aligned with that. It's, that's, it's very different. So, you know, and, and I got there and all the, prof I talked to all these professors and they were like, yeah, it's, you know, uh, we don't do any activism. Um, the professor, even though like that was focused on social movements, like nobody, Nobody was like involved. And I thought that these people would be more embedded. I thought that there would be like a relationship, a conversation between the researchers at the university and the activists. So that like, because we're, you know, we have resources at the university and can do it. It's like, that's, 
it sounds crazy. I'm saying this out loud, but that was my fantasy of going into academia was that I could, you know, support the social movements, but that there, you have to like, you know, you don't do any of that for the first couple of years anyway, because you're just taking classes, but, um, you know, your research ends up being very much led by what's going to be considered properly novel to get published in a journal and things like that. Um, it's not really that radical of a place. And, and so I left, it was also very uncomfortable for me, um, as like, like a working class student. I, it was a thing I did, but I didn't really realize at the time also that how elite academia was, how elite it was to even get to the level where you apply for and get accepted into PhD programs. And so I thought that there'd be other, like, kind of, I hope there would be some, you know, more rough around the edges, working class students who just were there because they cared so much, like that they were, that's where the passion came from. And then I like met with like a cohort of students who were like very nice. But the thing that bound them most of all was just that they had grown up rich and they were smart. And so naturally they grew up knowing that they would eventually have a go to grad school and probably get a PhD. And it was kind of laid out before them from a young age. And I found that experience really alienating because, um, you know, you're in class with those people and that's who like you're asking questions with. And um, I think when you grow up in that way, you make a lot of assumptions and have a lot of blind spots about the nature of um, what the good life is or or what you think like poor people want or need or should do. Like there's a lot of baggage like that. And yeah. <clears throat> But anyway, I went back to Philly. <laughs> I went back to Philly. I went back to cooking. You know, I, was, I spent a couple, like a lot of years trying to figure out what to do because social movements seemed like they were, this was like during the recession and, and this social movements seemed kind of stuck. There was like nonprofits. Um, and then Occupy Wall Street started and I participated in that. Like I went to a protest and uh, I never went home. <laughs> I, I was like one of those people because I had, nothing to lose. I had broken up with another boyfriend who was cheating on me. So I'd moved out of our apartment and I had been delivering sandwiches on my bike at some bougie sandwich store in Williamsburg, like the hipster neighborhood of Brooklyn. One of them, I like just really was not happy with my life. And so I went to this protest and it was pretty amazing. Um, it was one of the first big protests that Occupy Wall Street where everybody went over the Brooklyn bridge and the police kettled people. And there was like mass arrests and it grew from there. Um, so I, I, from that point on was like participated. I joined the food working group because that's where my background was. Like I knew I didn't really, I didn't see myself as one of the theory people. I didn't trust myself or think I was smart enough. I didn't have enough um, confidence in myself to be somebody who like participated in the really political conversations, but I knew how to organize a supply chain and make sure that the inventory is rotated properly and that food safety things are, are, are being carried out by all the volunteers so that everybody in the park doesn't get diarrhea. Like <laughs> that's, that's my mind could like wrap itself around that kind of complexity and find a spot. So that's, um, I did that. And then after I, um, you know, when the, the eviction happened, I got arrested with other people from the food working group and friends that are still good friends now. Um, we got arrested and then spent a couple of days in jail. Um, and then I, I went out West 
to be a union organizer because an, an old friend of mine that I'd actually been in Chiapas with was like, they had a position at a union he was working at. And that's how I started working as a union organizer. Um, and that was with long-term care workers, like workers who work in nursing homes specifically, like CNAs and cooks and clean, like um, housekeepers and stuff like that. And then finally, I just burnt out because as much as it was good to have a job that paid me $35,000 a year and I got health insurance and that I felt like I was doing some good in the world, those jobs are also really, really hard, um, especially if you're somebody who struggles with like some trauma and mental health issues. Uh, so being, you know, having kind of megalomaniac bosses that are just like, it's a snowstorm, you still must go knock on a hundred workers doors and you have to, it's just a very intense, like boot camp like work situation when you're at the bottom rungs as a union organizer. And there's a pride about it of, you know, that you've worked 80 hours a week and you're exhausted and kind of an alcoholic, but you know, you're, you just like did X, Y, Z organizing. So it's justifiable. And I was doing really bad. And then, um, so I, I ended up having health problems from driving. I was driving like a thousand miles a week. Um, so my body did, was falling apart from that. Like you can't sit. I think a lot of people during the pandemic are realizing that even more now. You can't just sit for many hours every day in the same position because your your muscles will atrophy and then all of that weight is going to crush down on your lower back and your hips and you'll be in pain. And like once you get a herniated disc, you're like, stuck with the painkillers for the rest of your life. And um, I didn't want that um, because people in my family had struggled with it. So I decided to quit. And was your politics evolving over this time period as well from like young punk uh, anarchists to where we are now? Yeah, they were always, always evolving. I'm the kind of person like where my life experiences are always influencing my thoughts and the people I meet. and. You know, um, after Occupy Wall Street, after chanting, we are the 99% like a million times, I, the question was, I was like, well, who is this abstract notion of the 99%? Like, I want to go out, like being a union organizer was like my way. And I went out into like a rural conservative area to do it. I was like, I'm going to learn <laughs> what that means. I'm going to complicate that issue. I'm going to complicate that idea for me so that when I, I can think politically more clearly about that instead of just being like, whoa, general strike. Like I want to be able to think with the complexity and have space for it to always grow. Um, you know, and so the recession was happening and I Occupy Wall Street was kind of the first movement I participated in that didn't feel like I was, I was like taking a political position. Like I was very personally implicated in that as, you know, somebody like tons of debt, can't find work you know, struggling with all of these issues. Um, you know, what's funny is like you keep giving like these milestones of when I did this, the economy was doing bad. And then when I did this, like uh, unemployment was high when I was doing this recession was there. And it's like, even to this day right now, present time, the economy has never really gotten better for working people, right? Right. <laughs> so it's just like a consistent. So there's like, yeah, you know, what's the point of milestones? They trick us into milestones, but it's like always permanently bad. Yes. Actually, I'm glad that you said that because that's when, when I wrote my book, Hard Bones, I included this essay on meritocracy that kind of traces like political economic history for the last 30 years. 
Like, and I had to include that because that layer of understanding, like there's the spiritual journey and the therapy and the tr- there's all this stuff, but it's so important to remember that things have gotten worse. Like we're constantly told that they're better because we have a new cell phone or now we have like 500 different apps we can pay for to stream some movies and, you know, you could get weed delivered now. It's really good. Like life's fine. <laughs> yeah. The recession is over. Really? It doesn't feel like it, you know? Right. And I like wanted to chart that history for people. Like I, I've been obsessed with these ideas and learning about this history and, and I've been in it. Like I want like to recognize that like maybe not everybody sees it in that way because they haven't read as much about it and haven't connected those dots. It was important for me to connect those dots because I wanted people to like empathize with me and then empathize with themselves to be like, shit, like so much of what I've gone through, like there's been this, you know, I I think about the last 10 years, there's been this relationship where I was depressed or this, how much of the economy, how much of that had an impact on why these things unfolded the way that they did? Well, it definitely doesn't help relationships. That's for sure. No, (laughs) no. I wrote about like the 10 years since Occupy Wall Street happened. I, I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I, when I wrote about it in that essay chapter, like housing, for instance, has just gone like it's like quadrupled housing costs since then. And that's just 10 years. It's, I don't know. I have to get the right exact number looking at my book with the reference. I have so many references in there, but but it's like the, and that's like the biggest, um, you know, that's everybody's biggest monthly income cost their biggest cost every month. And it's gone up so much. And we've just sort of been like, well, you know, we're just like those stereotypical frogs in the pot of boiling water or the pot of water, the temperature's rising and rising and rising. Because we haven't gotten to the retirement age yet. So we don't know what all this means yet. Right, right. And because because the way I saw myself politically, I'm just like, this is like, I have to like keep telling myself, this is also, this is the economy. This is capitalism. And then realizing, okay, it's not just the material effects of capitalism. It's kind of the way that it changes people's thinking about themselves and the other people around them. So you didn't always think about it in terms of capitalism before early on? Um, not as, not as uh, directly. I like I, for instance, I really saw um, like, um, you know, I, I've, I've come to terms with the childhood trauma and abuse in phases and different layers over the last 20 years. Most explicitly in the last three or four years, uh, or most year even. Um, so like when I was like, didn't realize I had, um, PTSD and was triggered into a panic attack. I didn't have that vocabulary or understanding. I just knew that I was crazy and that was uncomfortable for people around me and I had to find therapy. So like accessing mental health care where you're like a poor working class person is so hard. It takes so much work. And you're like, it's, it takes very long time to get on the list. And then you can't, you don't have any choice over what kind of a therapist that you have. Rich people always blame it on stigma, right? But it's like, no, there's also like cost and barrier to entry for people who don't have money, right? Mm-hmm, I know. And I'm like one of those people, I'm like, man, like men just need to go to therapy. Also knowing that like, even if there wasn't stigma, they, like most people couldn't access it. Not consistently, not like, trauma informed, like very often in like, you know, the, to get the care you need, it's, it's very hard. And so you're stuck and then you, you'll, of course, they'll, they'll medicate you. And medication is hugely helpful for some people, but most of the time, the kind of healthcare you get if you're poor or working class, if you're lucky enough to have health insurance or Medicaid is just getting a, um, a generic SSRI from your primary care doctor, 
And so you're going to go mess with your brain chemicals and they're not even going to like be able to talk with you about it. The care you get through Medicaid is very little talk therapy or actual like that type of counseling, right? It's a lot of medication. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. You stop and start, you know, you go to seek out services when you're in crisis, typically, you know, and then, so when you're poor, it's like, okay, are you suicidal? So we can put you in the hospital or are you fine? And we'll send you home. Okay. You're fine. So, uh, you can get on the waiting list. It's going to be three or four months before you can see a therapist. And then you'll get 45 minutes twice a month. And like so much can happen in your life. And, you know, when you're like precarious, you're working paycheck to paycheck and anything can knock you off. Suddenly, you know, you're, you need a car repair or any, anything, anything you could think of can happen. And now your life is appreciably worse and you feel shittier and you feel like a failure and you don't know what you're going to do and you have anxiety. Like that's, you know, that exists in your mind, but that's, that's external conditions. So much of that's external conditions and that's capitalism. That's like not having a social safety net. So like terrified of what could happen if you fall through the cracks, if you take a sick day or anything like that, you know? Um, and, and you have to be competitive and you have to grind and, you know, mental, like if you're mentally ill or have trauma or something like that, it's a liability. Nobody wants to talk about it. Um, because you have to compete against other people for your job. So like, you know, if they know that about you, then they could outcompete you. <laughs> And use that like as a weakness or something like that. Um, so you, you know, want to keep it to yourself. Um, I yeah. So I didn't. I just thought like I was crazy. It was in my head. It was my fault because my relationships failed um, because I had such deep trauma that I couldn't even access, um, and I couldn't like get the care I needed. And it kept on being this circular thing. Well, if you want to get good health care, you need to get a good job that has health insurance. Okay. Apply, apply, apply. I can't get a good job that has health insurance. I have to go back to working in a restaurant. I have to work two jobs. I have to work a gig job. Like none of these things helped me to access the kind of mental health care I really needed. So it wasn't as simple as like a young person, let's say, thinking it's just about rules or older people, you know, initially when you're like 16, you're just thinking about your parents, but it's not as simple as like people bossing you around. As you become older, you realize that's part of it, but it's more than that. It's literally everything. It's the air you breathe and that's capitalism. And you're in this situation you're talking about with just trying to get good care. There's no like one villain. There is no like authority. It's just the whole fucking system is not there to help you. And so you can't be in a good place to get a good job but then you need the good job to give you access to care. And it's this endless loop that just makes things worse for you. Yeah. You know, like when people talk about, I've got a really bad inner critic. I think a lot of us do. And a lot of that's rooted in, you know, childhood traumas or various things. But like, if you pull back and think about how much imposter syndrome and inner critic talk is really just like capitalism talking to you. Like 
keeping you hungry, keeping you insufficient, always in need of another service of like another, like you got to up your game. You got to compete harder. You got to go. It's, it's your fault. If you fail is ultimately like what's underneath all of that. And so like, it's, it's funny to think about healing and like, oh, well, you know, I, I work, I do a lot of what's effectively like, you know, dialectical behavioral therapy, which is kind of just like a, a clinical way to talk about like what you do in, in like some Buddhist practice where you're going to like, you know, like listen to the voices. You're going to like sit quietly and like listen as these different like voices surface and are saying these things and you like gently like listen and ask it what it has to tell you and talk back to it. Like it's beautiful. But like if that voice is, you know, it it's the same voice that like we hear in all of the advertising and in just the water, it's, it is in the water that we're in. Uh, uh, it's the, it's the same thing. So it's very hard to be like, I'm rejecting this voice when that voice is like, the one that's supposed to be like motivating you to be a good capitalist subject. And there is no outside of capitalism. So you must become one because you have no choice. So now you're moving on to dialectical materialism and looking at the the conditions around you, right? And your response to those conditions. Yes. That's how you become like an organic Marxist, right? (laughs) You just (laughs) ask those questions and you're like, all right, wow. Or life beats you up enough and then you end up there too. If life, you have to make sure though that you Life beats a lot of us up really hard and, um, you know, that you got to like save some tenderness to ask those questions for yourself. Like, I think a, there's a block where a lot of people can't um, make that connection to the material conditions that are making their life so messed up uh, because there's so much shame around being considered an economic failure in this country. We hate poor people so much. And so like as much as like it would be very healing for people to embrace like, oh, shit, this isn't my fault. This is the way the system functions. Like how much healing do you think people could do instead of like blaming themselves and finding themselves inadequate? But I think people are afraid right now to be an individual that says that because it'd be so easy for the mass of people to be like, shut the fuck up. You're just lazy or you're dumb or you're not competitive. You're all of these things instead of like being like, oh, wait, right. Like It's not just me. Like that's an empowering thought. And then what do you do with that? That's a good point because when life beats you up, it's not like automatic that you draw these conclusions because we're so conditioned by life and capitalism, to your point. So it's not just binary. You end up realizing you're a product of your environment and your conditions, or you go the other way and you become a Trumper. There's actually a spectrum of other things you could end up where you still don't ever really connect the dots to your conditions, right? You could even be some form of leftist and still never equate it to your conditions, right? So there's like a whole spectrum of ways you could end up. And it's like all of them can kind of get closer to seeing yourself as a product of your environment, just like any other organism. But it's so deeply embedded to think of yourself as like the master of your destiny. And so therefore different from other animals, then it's like you somehow are not a product of your environment. And then therefore it is you who is the failure or um, you look at others and you judge them in that way, in that type of like bootstrap, you should have done something. And I see that a lot, even with like leftists when they, maybe not necessarily with their circle of friends per se, or even domestically, but it's so easy to do that on other countries too. They're like, oh, well, they fucked up. That's why they're like that, right? So there's a whole gradient of ways where you cannot be thinking in that way of like looking at your conditions and seeing yourself as just like a part of this web. Yeah. And that's, Thinking about our that that's like not a very American thing, a way of thinking at all to to think about think of ourselves in in 
embedded in, that we are a product of our environment, that we are the environment, that we are of it and connected and that like, you know, that like the, the self is the only thing, right? There's just the, like the self as opposed to being like the self only exists because there's other selves that you're interacting with, that you're, we're social. Like we only like matter in community and connection with other people. That's like what we do. But, um, you know, I've, I've talked with you about this before though, of the, the hyper individualism at this point in America, that's like, so the upside is like, you know, if you're hyper individual, you might be a billionaire. You might, and if you don't become a billionaire, you could be an influencer. and you know, that can lead to money and status. Like you could, there's, there's like more opportunities for like a couple more, like a handful more, you know, we have more billionaires now than we ever have. So it must mean that there's more opportunities, except the wealth inequality is greater than it's ever been before. Like the, the, the flip side of that individualism, so there's the opportunity. The flip side is like you're saying is like that the consequence is that you're like, is failure because there can only be a couple of winners. And you know, if you're playing the game and you fail, you can't complain about the game, right? Your body's beat up, your soul, your spirit is beat up. So what was your journey then into martial arts from here and in choosing a martial art? So back in, um, I guess, so 2015, um, my brother died in 2015 and I got really sick, like uh, really bad IBS and um, I went to a lot of doctors. So I was in grad school at the time and I could get healthcare, but there was nothing wrong with me. And so, um, like I, it was psychosomatic or not, I I don't know if that's the right word. My nervous system was going crazy because there was all of these like secrets that died with my brother. And it was like, I, I hadn't, that was sort of like what started me on this healing journey. And I didn't realize it was like, figure out what happened to him because we were so close when I was younger. So it was my history too. And so, um, I like had like after six months of like diarrhea every day, basically, and not holding food down, I, um, ended up like doing some, like a psychedelics with a friend of mine who suggested it, who was a neuroscientist, um, because it had worked for her somewhat. And like from that experience, um, I, uh, killed some parts of my ego, as they say. Uh, and that looked like me crying finally over my brother's death. Like I finally like released, started like releasing all of that, like deep pain and despair. And the, you know, the character talking to me and like the visions I had was like, you know, you all, you've inherited a lot of trauma down through the, the women ancestors bloodline, your mother's bloodline. Um, but you've also inherited a lot of strength. And I was like, what does that mean? And it's like, go out into the world and figure it out. Cause that's how, you know, that's how psychedelics and different things work. It doesn't magically change anything. It just sort of like gives you an idea of what's already there in your own, your subconscious. It just surfaces some of it. Yeah. Look what it's done for Joe Rogan, right? It just made him worse. <laughs> I know. I know. I, that's, I feel so weird about talking about it sometimes. So I'm like, uh, like I, I, it's going to be, it's, it's your, so much of it is what you bring to it. Yes. Um, so I was in grad school and I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to figure that out. But that was also, you know, um, Trump got elected soon after that. And things were just crazy politically in Philadelphia. There's just like protests, multiple protests in a day through the inauguration, through the stuff. People were like 
just, it was so intense, like everywhere. Remember we were going to airports, like all of a sudden we're going to go to this elected official thing. It was just like everything, all the compression of all of the political angst and being stuck uh, with neoliberalism was just like exploding. And like Trump was the kind of like what, like let that valve out, you know, like that, like the, some of that pressure out. Um, but it was very unproductive. It was very circular. There was a lot of trauma that people were bringing to the room. And it was, it was like, well, for me, it was hard. Like I, it felt almost like going to protests was like going to church where it's like, okay, I'm doing this because this is like the good thing I think that's supposed to do. There's like children in cages on the border. And so that like, we have to like do this stuff. But um, I like, exhausted myself again I was burnt out after like several months of that and I didn't feel like it was going anywhere like what next are we just going to be in a state of like despair and shock for the rest of these four years or what um and then a friend of mine I was like I was so tired and so depressed and I didn't know what to do this was like probably March March of 2016 I talked to an old friend of mine and I was like I don't know maybe just sort of like, I should train a martial art. What do you think? And pass it in passing. And she's like, oh, well, my boyfriend does Muay Thai. You should do it. You'd look cute in the shorts. And I was like, all right, cool. So I like found, I Googled Muay Thai gym in Philadelphia, found one and just showed up. Like I didn't even watch any videos online. I was afraid that if I watched the YouTube videos, (laughs) I would get intimidated and leave (laughs) and never do it. Um, I knew that it was kickboxing, but I just didn't know very much else about it. I like was just like, I'm going to try it. And, and so I went and took a class, um, and it was so hard. Um, but I, you know, like jumping rope was so hard. I like loved it. It like, it was the, it just made me feel like I was in contact with my body again, even though it was pain, how I was contacting my body because I hadn't moved in so long. Um, so yeah, I, I did it. And then I was like, the only way, cause those gym memberships are expensive. And so I had to like quit smoking, quit drinking, quit smoking weed excessively, like anything I did, any like extra self-medicating things that I did, I had to like cancel and just do the Muay Thais because I, you know, as grad student, you don't make very much money. So, so I did that. And I like, it just, it really changed my life in a lot of ways because it was an area like I finally felt agency. I'd been spinning my wheels politically and like vocationally and all of these things for so long um, with my mental health and everything else. And I just couldn't, I couldn't get a handle on it. It just felt like I was just, everything was repeating, but nothing was getting solved. But suddenly there was just like this feeling of um, freedom inside of my body. Like this was a practice that I was doing and I was like, I liked being coached. Um, when I had good coaches, people that were just like love the sport and wanted to see students get better. Um, so, you know, I had a lot of different experiences with different coaches and went, ended up going to different gyms in Philadelphia um, over that time because as much as like a, a combat sport gym, Muay Thai gym, whatever, can be a place of a lot of healing and a lot of like women end up there because of like sexual assault and various like abuse and things that happen that they want to like learn self-defense and to learn to protect themselves. Um, like those spaces, I know you've talked a lot about this too. Like there's also like a lot of predatory behavior that happens in those spaces. Um, so I had to like navigate that 
to keep going because so many, I met so many like women that started training in my first year or two and didn't last very long. Um, because you're, if you're in like a toxic gym, then, and the, and the, you know, the owner, the head coach wants to sleep with you, then you'll get lots of attention until he's done with you. Um, but if, if you're, if he's not interested in you're like a woman, they're not going to take you seriously. Like my first gym, after I trained there for a year, I was like, I think I want to fight. Um, because you know, you, you develop skills to such an extent that you want, and you start sparring, you want to like, all right, I want to try out my skills with another person who's trained, like, because it's, it's a totally different game. And, um, to have a person give you their training and vulnerability and you give them yours to have that exchange. And, um, he told me I was just too big. I would, I would never find an opponent um, if I was going to fight at like 140 or 135 or something like that. And so I like, I found another gym and I, and then another gym. And eventually like two years after that, I did fight. And that was a really great thing for me. Um, I was really proud of that. Um, that was right before COVID. So like November, 2019, I had my first amateur fight after having a couple of smokers over the previous summer. Um, and then I went to Thailand because, you know, that like Muay Thai just gave me so much. I was training every night. It, 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 it gave me so much, but also like nothing else in my life felt like it was working out. I graduated from grad school. I you know spent all this time studying housing policy and written a thesis and I wanted to go do the work again, <laughs> but um, it's probably not going to surprise you, but there's not, really many jobs or any jobs in the United States uh, that are specifically trying to solve the housing crisis. Um, if you want to get into real estate and flip houses and make the crisis even worse, the the world is your oyster. <laughs> yeah. So I um, decided to go to Thailand and I had, because I couldn't find like a real people job, I was making my money selling like marijuana edibles, which are, you know, deep, decriminalized in the, in Philadelphia, but, um, not necessarily legal, but so that, so I saved up some money and was like, I'm going to go to Thailand for two months. It's my 40th birthday. I'm going to go. And, and when I went, um, I trained at a couple different gyms there, but I also had like a, a pretty intense breakdown experience where I was there, which I recognize now was just the beginning of me starting to process some of the trauma of the childhood. Um, and I decided I was like, I'm going to go back to Thailand for a year. I'm going to say, go home, settle my affairs, sell my car, um, save some money, do, do some work, and then go back to Thailand for a year or so because um, I recognized that I really did need to heal some stuff. I couldn't tell you exactly what it was. I knew it was wrapped up in my childhood. Like I felt it, but I, I just knew that like when I was caught up, in the grind in the United States of just constantly applying for jobs and not getting jobs. And I'm going to like do a website and social media so I can make it look like on paper that I'm qualified for this job that I don't even want. And I'm like just spinning my wheels constantly because I, I feel like I can't, it's very hard to find socially valuable work that I uh, doing something you care about and trying, you know, I, it's just so everything was, it was, it was expensive. I had like roommates who I didn't trust. I, I was like, if I go to Thailand, the the cost of living there, like the, 
the Thai bot is worth like a third of a dollar. So because of um, because of the exchange rate, which is effectively the you know the old non-colonial colonial regime of Thailand, since they you know never officially a, a colony, but I talk a bit about that history in my book. Um, it's like a it's very affordable place for like Westerners and more and more Asian people too, from like the economies that are doing well to go on vacation. It's, you know, I, I just, I felt like I needed that space where I could do some remote work, but I didn't have to work as hard and I could just focus on training Muay Thai. And it was very vague concept. I just knew that I couldn't heal within the context of the grinding life I was living. U.S. was too expensive to heal. Yeah, it was expensive. It was very, um, you know, everything was like competitive and go. Like, I just didn't feel like I I could afford to rest. Like, we can't afford to rest. I'm saying this about myself, but this is the state for everybody that's in the United States for the most part. Like, you can't heal in the same environment that's like fucking you up. Right. And because people don't recognize like the hyper capitalism of, that they're embedded in, in the United States, they don't recognize that that element that's fucking up their mental health is out of their control. Like that is something that they have to get away from, you know, like people talk about workaholism and different things, but those are all kind in some ways, those are like trauma responses that people are um, participating in and not, not recognizing that like the structures of capitalism are causing them. They're in that environment and that's how it's expressing itself. But, you know, so I, I, I made those plans and then COVID happened. Um, and I decided to go anyway in early March because I didn't have anywhere else to go. I didn't have a job. I knew that it was going to be so hard to find work and that the only work I'd find was essential worker work. And that wouldn't expose me to COVID, but wouldn't be enough money for me to be able to afford to live on my own. And I, I didn't have anywhere to go. And I, I just was like, all right, I'm going to just roll the dice here. Uh, be confident that I'll land on my feet somehow and just go. So going to Thailand and training at multiple gyms, and now this is your second time there, but now you're there even longer. So you have some experience. What are some technical pointers and emphasis you learned at the gyms you visited that were new to you? I don't want to say it's like a Thailand specific thing because every gym is different. But while you were in Thailand, what were some of the things you picked up? The biggest thing for me was uh, relaxing my shoulders. I know that that's small, but like, I was so rigid and like so many people who train Muay Thai in the United States are also very rigid. And so I didn't recognize it in myself until I was there, you know, like in, in the United States, your coach will be like, let your hands go. And I'm, I just being like, what does he mean? Let your hands go in order to like hit harder. And like, like the, the coaches that I trained with in Thailand would say it all the time, like, sabai, sabai, relax, relax. They like saw so much tension in my body and they would joke about it. And I'd be so like grumble, grumble. I was like, oh, I, it's, it's funny to imagine myself now where it's like, relax. And I'm like, you know, fuck you. I can't relax. <laughs> Even though I'm doing this thing in my body that I love, I feel tension. And, um, you know, I like worked at it slowly. It was like to learn to do Muay Thai without that was like learning how to do it again, because I just, I had always been so tense the entire time. So, you know, I try to work to let that go. And then, um, well, that tension's also like water in the U S so nobody probably even notices it. 
you know, so they're not thinking like you need to relax because they're tense too. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so that was, that was at the, both the gyms, that was really big. Um, I also really learned about, um, like training yourself, like how much joy it is to just train yourself in your martial arts. Like, um, before I think I was really like, um, attached to the gym culture in the United States where like the coaches are like, you know, you, they're gurus in the, in the worst places, but always really looked up to. And there's a bit like a whole lot of community around that, around the gym and that's fine. But I, um, I really also appreciated like the, the time, you know, you to, I guess all of the work on your own, like learning to do like bag drills on your own and learning to like, um, because you don't have a class where they're, you're being, you know, the, the coach or somebody else is stretching you out that you're like paying attention to your body and making sure that you're stretching yourself. Um, and, and I guess partially the second time I was in Thailand, most of the tourists had gone back. So the gyms were pretty empty. There was only a couple of us and we weren't even allowed to train regularly. Most of the time it'd be like, um, cause they're, you know, even though the gym was open, the like police would come by every day to make sure there weren't too many people gathered. So like learning to do that, I guess it's, it's, it made it more of a practice for me. I think, um, like I, when I train now, um, where I'm at, like, I don't belong like formally to a gym really. Like I do a little boxing and I go to the crunch gym and I do so much of the work by myself that I like, you know, I, I miss being at a gym, but like, I, I find, I feel like it's, I'm really exercising my practice when I do it now. I think that's much more similar to like a boxing gym where you don't hear as much about boxing gym culture being toxic. Obviously, there's going to be toxic men in there, especially it's going to be like a lot of men in a gym. But so many of the boxers there train themselves. The gym culture isn't as important because you're not doing a class together. You know, you're mostly working by yourself. Right. And I think uh, Muay Thai is very much similar to that in Thailand, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, you know, I was hoping to get like fights. I went to, I spent the second time I stayed in Chiang Mai the whole time and Chiang Mai is supposed to be, well, it was before COVID a really good place for women who wanted to fight um, because there was a couple like smaller stadiums that like had fights several nights a week. So you could get lots of opportunities to practice. Um, but th those all closed down. There's, uh, so much Thailand has been so affected. They've, because of their public health response, they've been spared a lot of the casualties and sickness that other countries have because of like their, you know, that kind of work that they did. Um, but at the same time, the, the, the economy was so dependent on tourism that like a lot of gyms have had to close since then. Um, it's, it's interesting to me. I see on message boards and stuff, sometimes people now talking about like, I just want to go away to Thailand and do this and that. And I'm like, it just, it's significantly different now than it was before COVID. Now, did you end up getting trapped there as well? Cause you said you wanted to stay there a year, but was there at a point because of COVID where you couldn't even come back if you wanted to? I was there maybe a week and they went to like phase whatever red. I don't, I don't forget how they ranked it, but it was, they told all the, the tourists and expats that were in Thailand. They're basically like, all right, you've got a week to get out of here. And then we're closing the borders. And the vast majority left. Um, but I decided to stay because I, I, I didn't, I didn't have, and I was right. <laughs> I had more faith in how COVID would be handled in Thailand than I did in the United States. Um, 
and also like I, I was able to be independent. You know, I I could afford like a little studio apartment I rented near the gym, and I had my little you know electronic frying pan and my steam kettle, and like so I could go to the market and cook food or like eat, and then go to the gym. So it was like a very quiet austere life, but I was independent. And that was really important to me. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but don't you kind of think it's odd when Americans escape their country permanently? It's called expat, but for other people, other countries that the U.S. doesn't like, they're defectors. You don't call them like U.S. defectors, right? But it's the same thing. Yeah. I write about, it was, you know, as I was there and seeing it, you, you want like your perspective changes when you're in a country that's not your own country for longer than a few weeks, you start like noticing patterns. And, and, you know, I had known that there was like a lot of expats from, um, especially like from Australia and Europe and stuff like that, especially men. And so I started researching it and trying to find like more information about that. And there's so many in Thailand. And it's, it's just interesting to me. It's true, like what you're saying, they're, they're expats, but in reality, and 80 to 90% of those that are considered expats in Thailand are men. They're probably there for the same reason, you know, but they don't want to say it out loud. Right. Well, you know, the ones that do say it out loud kind of have this similar uh, way of describing it as um, the MRAs or the incels do, where they're like, oh, these Thai women are traditional and they'll cook and clean for me and Western women are feminist and blah, blah, blah. But in reality, they're like, you know, they're middle-aged pensioners who in their own country, they like they are socially marginal because the cost of living has gone up so much. And because they, a lot of, obviously if they're like exhibiting this kind of like behavior towards women, not a lot of women are going to (laughs) be that interested, but there's so much poverty in Thailand that like, it's, that's what happens. It's a different condition, right? Yeah. It's a totally different condition. I mean, like marriage is like, of course it's about like love these days to a certain extent. And you want to have a partner that you get along with, but like, you know, ultimately in the United States, like marriage is also, uh, it is a economic financial thing, you know, that choice that you're making. Um, and people try to like protect themselves financially in their marriage. Um, there's more legal rights and stuff you get. Women don't have equal footing, but they have more footing than a white man and a Thai person, let alone a Thai woman. Yes. And that is, Like, that's another thing, too, is that there's like the in Thailand, there's so few laws protecting like, you know, like protecting women. Um, And so like even I had like I wrote about a friend, a Thai woman I was friends with there in um, when I was there that like was getting abused by her American boyfriends, like really physically abused really badly. And I think there's recently a law about like domestic violence, but I think it's been prosecuted maybe people have been prosecuted maybe three times in thailand or something and i think with thailand there's so many more westerners there living there than in most other countries right so i think the westerners who live there have an outsized influence on the country as well uh yes yes i like that came into focus for me more and more the more time i spent there to the extent that i realized like it's only been since the 1980s that that like that big tourist campaign of like the thai smile and like happened and like tourism started getting promoted like really really hardcore in thailand like there had always been some amount of tourism and it it was like a 
R&R stop during the Vietnam War, where like American troops were shipped, which is like the beginning of a lot of the sex trade, the sex industry there. The sexual imperialism that started from like Japan to Korea to Thailand. Yes. Yeah. And so there's always like, and after the Vietnam War, like there's a certain amount of the tourism, but in the eighties that, that like it received a, um, a huge boost from the government. It was actually like the, the tourist authority that started promoting it. And, and something like a third of the economy now, I forget. I have, I have a lot of citations in my book with these (laughs) numbers and the research I did at the time, but it is such a massive part of the economy and you can go there as a Westerner and live in a bubble where you, you know, maybe back in your home country, you made 50 grand a year or you're, you know, you're making that much as a digital nomad or something. But if you move to Thailand, you can live in your own luxury apartment where you have like housekeepers come every day. You could eat out at a restaurant every single meal, go to a gym that has the, like the most state of the art equipment go to go to a hospital that's super fancy and new that mostly serves westerners um you can access like all of this stuff that's made especially for the tourists um and i did i like was a, i was a bit naive when i first went there the extent of that was like even the muay thai gyms are a huge part of tourism um the country that and now there's even more of that and they're like expanded and so there's like yoga retreats and weight loss camps and all of this stuff to the extent that I think that like most like like Thai people were even enrolled in this project of being like extremely nice and over the top kind to the tourists who are just notoriously drunken louts, like the, of being like, oh, you know, the Thai people are so nice and passive. You know, a lot of the like the the tropes that you hear about Asian people are like sort of like really hardcore there because they're used to sell the tourism so much that's what havana used to be back in the day that was what cuba used to be before their revolution if you love the southpaw project please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on patreon it'll help us supplement the cost of running this project the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle southpaw with our day jobs but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. You have to imagine the kind of like double consciousness that like the average Thai person has because there's so many tourists. I think it was something like 25 million per year. It's crazy how many tourists before COVID were coming into the country every year. Like that many people and the, the majority of population in Thailand is concentrated in Bangkok and all of the tourism happens in different resort towns and the beaches and the mountains. So you could just imagine how much that changes. Like it almost be like the normal is that there's like tourists everywhere that you have to like bow down to basically and like be super kind to. So, and that, like I felt that when I was there and it made me really sad because it was hard to have like I made a couple of friendships with Thai people I was there um, that spoke English. Um, but you can see like what I write about, like this teacher that I like had like an, a, a crush on an affinity for where I wanted to know him. But like he was so cautious and he was so like distrustful. And I had to like come to terms with why that wasn't like realize that like it doesn't matter if I'm like like what it is like the power dynamics between the tourists 
and like regular Thai people are like really messed up. And like those, those are two separate worlds that have to be kept so that like Thai people can keep some kind of authenticity to themselves that isn't completely for sale, you know? It must almost be like dating your boss, right? A tourist. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I hated it. I, I hated feeling that. Um, but it, I couldn't argue my way out of it or something. I, I wouldn't, I couldn't change that, but it is. And I, I mean, I'm not rich, but I'm a rich Westerner. You know, you could be like middle class or lower middle class. And because of the exchange rate, practice the geo arbitrage and go there and your dollar's worth more. The dollar hegemony. Right. So I can go there and like, you know, it's extraordinary privilege because if I wanted, like, if I were to be like, yeah, come back to the United States with me, the amount of hoops he'd have to jump through and like, like with the way our um, tourist system works, like I don't make enough money in the United States to sponsor uh, if I were to marry somebody so they could get a green card. I couldn't do that. Like I could marry him, but I, the INS wouldn't like pass that, you know, like, I just think of like how immigrants are treated in this country, how horribly, especially when they're not like from Europe and that differential exists, whether I like it or not, that is the, that is the way things are. And, um, I hate it, but I, uh, I accept that that's the reality. Now, while you were there, I remember asking you about Thailand and Westerners who visit there and how some have used traditional knowledge to gain fame and celebrity. I know your thoughts on this have evolved since I first asked about it. I know we even had a conversation about how you changed your thinking about some of this. Can you tell me what your thoughts are now as far as Westerners and exploitation in Thailand? I feel like I see it everywhere now. So many things that I used to just consider romantic as in like, you know, you're going to go get your um, Sakyant tattoo and train at a Muay Thai gym. It's really authentic. You're doing, you're living your dreams. It's this really exciting thing. And lots of people think that about me. And I was living my best life. I was, you know what I mean? Like I was like, took that risk and did it. But um, it's hard to not see that most of those relationships as exploitative. I mean, it's part of, it's like you're selling a fantasy you're selling Instagram opportunities and like you have to like the fantasy is of like hyper masculinity and like, you know, uh, oiled bodies that have visible abs that are like stepping into the ring. And, and there's this ancient tradition around it with like the music that's played and the, the, the different um, amulets you wear and, and stuff like that. And, and in some ways it, it is, it's real, but it's, it's, it's also not is you're you're participating in a tourist thing. That's perfectly fine. I'm trying not to like be judgmental about the particular choice that somebody might make. You're trying to be sensitive in that people might not be going there intentionally that they're going to be exploitative, but the result might be still exploitative. Right. Like I'm I guess it's to express that like even tourism, there is there is no outside to capitalism and so like um I guess to talk about it from the perspective of while I was there, the pro-democracy movement in Thailand uh, started picking up steam again. And there'd always been like some various movements Um, on my website. There's like a a research paper I wrote. That's like a history of the movement, the pro-democracy movement there. And 
you see like on one hand, what makes Thailand so appealing is that there's this low exchange rate that and like poverty. That's what makes Thailand such an attractive place. It's beautiful and tropical, but it's that the majority of people in that country live in poverty. And now you might not say that, but the reason that you can live so cheaply and live a luxurious lifestyle in Thailand as a Westerner is because the majority of Thai people live in poverty and, you know, they are resisting it though. Like the, the pro-democracy movement is growing and they're like, I, as I've watched it kind of continue since I've come back from Thailand, it's become more militant and like more young people are like participating in it. But I mean, Thailand still effectively has a military dictatorship. Like the prime minister got elected, um, but it was kind of, nobody really believed that it was a, a legitimate election. Um, so like Thai people are resisting this. They want equality. They want more rights for women and for gay people. You know, they're, 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 they're rising up and calling into question all of these contradictions. And it's, it's beautiful to see like the creativity and the energy of what they're doing. I was so like inspired because at the same time that was going on the George Floyd protests that started in the United States, it was really awesome to like be kind of surrounded by like different movement in each of my ears watching it happen. And so like, I would think that if you are like a Westerner and you go to Thailand, that you would want like, these are things that you should know about and support. Well, a lot of these like uh, people who, who made a name for themselves there and are financially benefiting from being there, they say they're there because they care about the Thai people. But it's like, I would say tourism in Thailand is the most extractive because, you know, if I go to Italy or somewhere else, like I'm just going there for rest and relaxation. Whereas a lot of people go to Thailand, likewise to some people go to like India they're going there to extract something. They want to gain something from there, right? Whether it's like enlightenment or yes, like yoga practice or Muay Thai or something. They, they want to like level themselves up. So a lot of these people who say they go to Thailand or they're there for the Thai people because they care about the Thai people. That's not why they initially went there, right? So I, I would say Thailand especially has a lot of this like white saviorhood that is like so normalized and nobody talks about it or they're afraid to talk about it because it is so accepted even by a lot of lefty people, right? And so a lot of these types of people who've gained celebrity or followers there who are white Westerners, if they say they care about the Thai people, you would think then they would be the first ones to talk about all these pro-democracy movements and protests and activism, but they don't say shit about it, right? And oftentimes they very much like fetishize the conservative culture. I was going to say, yeah, that's very true. The things, the elements, the things that they like are very conservative. I mean, like, like the military runs some big Muay Thai stadiums in the country. There's like, you know, there's there's a law in Thailand that's um, 112. It's their Les Majeste law. So if you get caught talking in public or on the internet saying bad things about the king, you could get thrown in jail. So many of these Muay Thai people are monarchists too. They love the idea of a king. I've been to so many Muay Thai gyms in the United States that have a picture of that stupid ass king on their wall. I'm like, why do you have this? Like, what do you know? Like, why? You know, like I, one of my trainers, <laughs> I remember one of my trainers in Thailand, I like I forget what he did when he saw it. Like every day at a certain time, I forget maybe 3 PM or something. I forget now in Thailand, like the national anthem plays and everybody's supposed to like stop and like salute. And the, on the TV, the King will be there and they'll play the, it's like a big 
you know, patriotic propaganda thing. And I remember my trainer just like, was like cursing and giving a finger to him on the TV screen and stuff like that. <laughs> well, it's like a lot of Western right-wingers are like that about Japan too, right? And obsessing about their feudal, like samurai culture and, you know, their overlords and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I've heard, I've heard like several people have a very simplistic history of they're like, well, Thailand was never colonized and Muay Thai was part of like, they learned that skill to like fight off the colonists. Like it's this very strange, like history that they have that you, you're like, who told you that? And you're like, oh, so this person and that. And like, it's based on like the tiny bit of truth that, you know, like the, at the time, like the king of Thailand saw that they couldn't resist colonization. They didn't have the military power or whatever. So they quote, like remained neutral, but let England pass these, like the treaty, I forget the name of the treaty, it's in my writing, like this early treaty that was super extractive and exploitative, that it's effectively a colony. I mean, that's probably why there's so many ethnic Chinese there who are probably the Chinese nationalists. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about ducks and these Thai protests. Oh, <laughs> so, um, so the, they're, the Thai people are very creative. The pro-democracy protesters have been very creative, um, especially with the use of, you know, with social media right now, like being able to like send images throughout. And when the protests started to be able to send like meaningful images out and so that there was protests that would happen in all of the, like the outer states and stuff outside of Bangkok. Um, the police turned water cannons on the people. Um, and so they responded with these, inflatable ducks like they were so organized in these protests um that they had like when they knew that they were facing like a police line and there's gonna be water cannons they like everybody's connected on their phones and getting messages and there'd be like a front line of people with like goggles and rain like uh, rain suits on and these giant inflatable ducks that they would use to shield people from the water cannons and so they like um they were used more and more and they became a protest symbol kind of the way like Gritty was a protest symbol, or if anybody remembers the, the that can of um, twisted tea, <laughs> you know, it was a meme. And so that showed up in a lot of stuff. And it was, I loved it so much because it was like cute and whimsical, like our, you know, like there's other symbols of protest movements besides a Molotov cocktail. It, it gives people like hope and, and a little bit of pleasure mixed in with it, you know. There was, I'm trying to remember exactly now because it's been a long time, but there, so there was, there's, they, uh, talk about the um, the Milk Tea Alliance was like the like protesters from India, Thailand, um, and I think Korea as well. But they all have like helped each other with their social media. And there's been different times of like the like the K-pop fans online that are like the the stands that are like they've been able to like you know use their uh, just their massive numbers to um, to support the protesters in different ways. It was initially one of my friends that I did make there, uh, who's a Thai, a Thai guy who's, who's younger than me. And we hung out. He was friend he was related to somebody at my gym. Um, he's the one who like initially started telling me about the protest because I saw them on TV and I asked him about it. And because he was younger um, and and like spoke English. So he was very like, like super aware of like various like global culture things and stuff like that. He was very excited to talk about it because also in like, it's not, it's not something you should probably, that it's considered that you should talk to like a Westerner about, you know, you don't really like say anything that would make you vulnerable in front of a Westerner. 
Yeah, I remember even for myself on Twitter, I would see a lot of that as well. People sharing and retweeting stuff with uh, videos and like you would hear BTS in the background. You would see people with ducks and and different protest signs and tie. But, you know, then I would recognize a Marx picture. So I'm like, oh, okay, so this is like, you know, a leftist action, you know? Yes. So why did you decide to write a book? Well, um, I finally left Thailand in September after seven months in September of 2021, 2020, 2020, God, the time is very strange now. I left at at the end of September. um, I came back to the United States to stay with friends in uh, Tacoma and I quarantined in the Airbnb for two weeks. And like the culture shock when I came back was so bad. Like I had left kind of on bad terms because this like fighter had threatened me who was much bigger than me. And then also a friend of mine back in the United States had died. And like, it was just got, and the, the political discourse coming from the United States at the time was like terrifying. It was, you know, in the fall of 2020, it really like, you know, whether Trump was going to win or just like fascism seemed very, very imminent. And I was, I just felt like I couldn't suffer or I didn't want my friends to suffer without me. Um, I like, it just, couldn't because I couldn't like I couldn't participate politically in Thailand um, or have authentic really relationships with people and uh, I was like I just need to go home so when I got back I was like my I felt like I was going crazy because coming back to the United States is suddenly like then um, it's like it's starting to be fall it's it's dark and politically things are really scary and um, People are still like, we didn't have any vaccines yet. And everybody's really scared. Like all I felt like when I came back was just fear all the time. And I like, didn't know what I was going to do. Like I just gone through all of this stuff. I just lived through all this. So I started writing. So I've always written um, and I enjoy writing, but I just started writing to like, just sort of, I was like, you know, oh, I'm just going to write about this in my journal. And then I started writing. And then I couldn't stop. I was writing like 10 hours a day, six days a week, like, because it felt like I was drowning. And that if I kept writing, it was like me treading water. And I didn't even know what I was writing. And then after like two weeks, I backed up and I like arranged all of these scraps of paper and stuff off my computer and looked at them and was able to diagram. I was like, oh, this is what this story looks like that I'm trying to tell. <laughs> and I, um, I, I finished it and like edited it and self-published it. And it was after I finished writing it, um, it was horrible. I think I thought that I, I was like suicidal and scared after it happened. And I thought that I was like, am I, what is this? Am I having like a manic episode? Is this psychosis? Like, I didn't know at a certain point I asked my, my roommate, I was like, you should just drop me off at the hospital, commit me. I don't know. I'm spinning, but like, now, after so much time, I see that as a moment of um, like positive disintegration because before I had never written a book. And so I didn't see myself that way. And now I had written a book and I had to see myself as somebody who had written a book. It didn't matter if the book was good or if it was successful or anything. It was just that I had done a thing. And like previously, I didn't feel like I had like accomplished very much. And it like it wasn't in, I had to like really refine my thoughts and like, over and over again, like detach myself from the results of the book and like, um, just like regarded as like, this is my personal big 
effort to contribute to, you know, the movements. This is, you know, what I, what I've done, but now I'm a person who has done this and that's different from the person that didn't do it. Like, like I had to believe in myself so much to, to write it, like to write a book, like everybody could write a book. Everybody should write a book or write, like people have got lives and, and ideas and stuff, but like, it's rare that somebody does it because there's a bigger voice in your head that says, don't do it. You're not worthy. You can't do this. What are you going to write about? (laughs) You know, (laughs) like uh, a lot more people would, if that voice didn't tell them not to. And so I just like, I like fought it really hard and did it um, and came out the other side, but it changed me. (laughs) You open up a lot about everything that's a happened to you, a lot of the things you alluded to in this interview, people can read in more detail in the book. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Th- there's, a, there's a lot of topics in the book, but I, like, I, I guess I'm talking about like, there's so many layers to your perception of what's going on and I'm identifying them as, so there's like a, the spiritual element of it, but um, as well as like the coming to terms with childhood trauma. Well, as a writer, you have to make sense of things, right? It can't be unclear to the reader. So you had to finally make sense of a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, when you write a memoir, it isn't like part of it's like, you've got to get your truth out there. But like, it's like telling a story that like, like you have to excavate your emotions and be so honest because that's what people want. They want your raw honesty. And I don't even mean in a capitalist sense, but I mean, like when I read like the memoir I recently read was uh, Brian Broom's Punch Me Up to the Gods, which is like about like growing up and coming of age as like a gay black man in Ohio. It like, I, I was just like moved. He stirred my emotions. I had such a reaction to his writing book. Like, like when somebody allows you to bear witness to their experience like that and you recognize certain elements in yourself and you like hold space for them to be them. But then you're also changed because you're like, Oh shit. Like I, I've been in this place before and I did something completely different. Um, it's, it's very, it's yeah. So it's very personal in that way. Cause I'm like, that's what I'm giving to the audience. I want them to empathize with me so that they empathize with themselves. Like in this country, like child abuse is so widespread and like, especially amongst people that are like more lower class, more working class and poor, like, and that's like directly a result of the economy and the choices that people make because of the economy, because of living in a capitalist system where there isn't a social safety net. And so like staying with an abusive partner is like, it's not always, it's not possible to leave so often. And, you know, the, the amount of stress put on like parents who are both working and, like have their own trauma. You imagine like my, this is something I'd love to explore and keep writing about later is like that the whole generation of people, the baby boomers, you know, that their parents came back from world war two and how many of them saw like horrific combat and death. And like in my family, that's one of the, the stories that happened in my family and that they like pass on, you know, become alcoholics and, you know, aren't able to deal with the trauma because there's not even a vocabulary for it back then, let alone treatment. And what that did to those children who then passed it on to their children. Um, you know, I, I, I want people to like relate to it um, and, and to feel seen, especially men, <laughs> like especially like cishet men, because I feel like I have so much in common with them in spite of being like 
uh, like a cis woman um, because I, I grew up with my brother. We were so close in age and I idolized him and I just wanted to be like him. And um, so many of the like, I guess the ways that like depression and trauma have like played out in me just because of how I am have been like more traditionally ways that like men deal with depression as far as like isolating and dealing with their rage by lashing out and different stuff. Like I, I have like so much empathy for them because I've like lived it in on my own. And um, I like, I hope that they feel seen and, 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 and worthy of like healing. And, and um, I think that a, a lot of healing politically and, you know, emotionally starts with self-compassion. And I hope that like with, I hope, like people need to heal quite a bit more before we can like become powerful. And where are you now in your martial arts journey and what have you learned in that journey? Um, so, so right now I am doing strength and mobility stuff, work training myself alone. I started um, training at a very old school boxing gym here in Cincinnati, actually in Kentucky, but um, I haven't gone back. I, I'm, I'm waiting till things like seem, I'm like, you know, Faxed and boosted, and it's a very small gym, so it's it's not um, there's not a lot of people that are in your space, and that's fine. But just I don't quite feel safe, you know. I also I work in the food industry, and all of my coworkers are also we don't make very much money, and we don't have health insurance, so we all are like trying to stay as safe as possible for each other, even if we are single and don't have a lot of outside like socialization and stuff like that. So I'm kind of waiting as much as I want to go back. I'm waiting a little bit longer <laughs> till the, till we're over the the surge. But when you came back and you were initially looking for some gyms, you had some bad experiences, right? Right. I did. Yeah. Well, when I got to Cincinnati um, and tried to find gyms, I like went to some MMA gyms and um, they, they were kind of like very macho spaces, very hyper-masculine spaces where there would only be one or other girl or something like that in there. Um, there's just a lot of like egos, like so much ego. And so like a couple times when I spoke up in class about not wanting to do a drill that was really dangerous uh, and we weren't using shin pads or when I like spoke up because a guy was doing that thing at the gym where he's like your training partner and he's much less experienced than you <laughs> and, and still insists on every time you throw a strike on correcting you. Uh, like that, I, like I was asked to leave that gym actually because like of a, of a bad attitude, um, because I made the mistake of like standing up for myself. It was, it was interesting to see cause everybody like just accepted those things. And you recognize when you start training a, uh, a martial art or something, there's a, there, you're pretty vulnerable space. And I realized that like, I was very intimidated when I first walked into a gym too. And so people stay in that state for a long time. And that state also means that they don't question the authority of the coach ever. Um, and, and that's not healthy because a lot of people never like progress past that. And, and so it, it creates a culture of like, you know, there's like a lot of silence and secrecy and making excuses because you just, you know, the, well, the coach had a fight, and you know, if the coach isn't bothering to like train up people and ha doesn't have a fight team or something like that, that coach is the only person that you see as having achieved something. I look forward to, I'm, when I move back to Philly, I look forward to training at our gym again. Um, 
But I think that my relationship to it will be different though. Like my relationship to my body has changed a lot through it because I've, I've done it and like stopped and started training a number of times now. And I've watched my body gain weight and lose weight. I've watched myself body be injured. Like I, you know, I'm 42 now, so I'm not like, I'm gonna have a fight career or something, but I like, I do enjoy, I really enjoy training hard. And like now I, I, I can listen to my body so much better than I ever could before. And like, you know, I don't, I don't really get like injured in my training very much. Cause I, I notice I'm like, Oh, this tendon is pulling across my back this way. That means that I'm actually off balance this way. So I'm going to do these mobility drills, you know, or I'm going to work on my footwork. Like there's just, it's, it's become like a whole body and mind type thing that I do for, for joy. And just as a part of like, helping me stay like stable and, and you know, a cool heart uh, and, you know, in control of my emotions and things. Uh, When I go back to Philly, there is like, there's like a leftist gym there uh, called people's power gym up in North Philly that I'm looking forward to training at. Um, I don't have, you know, I'm not like a fighter with a ton of fights or I don't have that kind of experience, but I love the sport so much. And I would love to train more people, especially sexual assault survivors you know, not because like, if you learn how to punch, you can prevent rape, but like for the, for the, the practice of coming back to your body, um, and being at home in your body, like how, how like healing that can be to come in and feel like you have agency to get stronger. And then you're, you do this work and then you do get stronger and it feels really good. And that's totally separate from any kind of like, quote, like fitness goals or weight loss or anything like the feeling of like being strong in your body, no matter what your body type looks like, like that is like, it, it is such a, such a, a a profound feeling to have. And it makes me think that other things are like possible in my life because like, I'm, you know, I'm standing in my stance in my body. You know, I trust myself. Where can people find more about you and your book? Um, so I uh, have just made a new website. My website is endnotesforendtimes.com. Um, and on that, if you go to the menu on the top where there it says book, um, you're welcome to buy your book through Kindle, through Amazon, if you want to buy an ebook that way. But you don't have to. There you can get... Um, you can get a PDF, a free PDF of my book that you can download and it's formatted like a book. So you could print it out. It's probably like 75 sheets, but you can print it out, fold it in half, and then you have like, you could read it offline. I also put up there a, a, an EPUB version, which you can download. There's a link. It just downloads off of my Google Drive because it's kind of a big, too big of a file for WordPress. Um, so you could get it to read on, like if you want to, you know, read on your e-reader, whichever one this one goes for all e-readers or else on your laptop. Um, and I've also, um, I recorded myself after I wrote the book, like reciting the book chapter by chapter, like on YouTube. So that there's a link to that as well. So if I know like so many people struggle with reading since the pandemic, and I know that I do, I do too. Like it's kind of fits and spurts. I'm like, Oh, I can read now. I'm going to read as much as possible. Cause you know, the anxiety will be too bad tomorrow and I'll just be stuck. <laughs> so in, uh, so that I, I did that. So you can watch it on YouTube, listen to that. Um, and yeah, I, I did do some print versions and I had like block printed the covers. I think probably like, there's probably like a hundred of them floating around that I sent to my friends <laughs> around the country. Uh, I don't know if I'll be making any more of those, but, um, but yeah, you can get that on my website and, um, 
also other writing that I, I've been working on. Give us the name of your book. It's called Hard Bones. How'd you come up with that? Um, it's I, So when I was in Thailand, I was taking Thai language classes at the university in Chiang Mai. And one of the ways that we were like learning, like one of the learning tools that the teacher had us do was like using idioms because every language has its own idioms. Um, and so when I was looking at the list of idioms that we were practicing writing down, I found this one, which I can't pronounce at the moment because uh, I don't have it in front of me in Thai, but it essentially meant it was like the literal translation was to have hard bones. Uh, but what the what the actual like translation, what it means is that you're hard to kill. And I was like, oh, that's perfect. <laughs> I love I love that idea because also, you know, when you train Muay Thai and you're throwing kicks against the heavy bag all the time and, and in other martial arts, you're like strengthening, you like are making micro fractures in your bone that heal so that and your bones get stronger and stronger. Um, and so I really loved, I love that, uh, that kind of metaphor and idea to go along with the book. Well, thank you for your time, Madeline. I'll put all that in the show notes. Thank you so much. I, I wanted to just take a moment to say like how grateful I am to the Southpaw community. Like there's, it's I, I, I've referred to it as my church before, but it's just like such a community of like really fantastic people that are open and curious and, you know, we, we learn a lot together. Um, and then there's, there's certain people I've met who like on this healing journey have been so, so like incredible to me that have held space for me, um, when through like, you know, times when I had to feel my anger to finally let my anger out and have hold spaces for me to be like tender so I could practice being vulnerable. Um, and there's like, there's like bits and pieces of those people woven throughout the book, these conversations I've had with people. And I'm, I'm just so grateful to have found you all. Well, appreciate hearing that. I think everybody brings something to it. So I know I've mentioned that there's a lot of community members who know you and now more of them know you. So you're bringing something new to the community as well. So you know, I, I think I've told people that I don't have any goal for Southpaw or the community. It's just kind of organic and, you know, you just see what happens. So I think these types of conversations that we're having and, you know, a lot of the questions I was able to ask is because we've talked before in the past about a lot of these things. So these conversations, these healthy conversations and curiosity and compassion and always coming from a place of love is like hopefully stays at the heart of this community as it grows. And I think then it'll attract the right type of people and they come with the right type of energy and so forth. So I think thanks to you as well for not only finding us, but also bringing a lot of uh, cool people and uh, a lot of good conversation to the atmosphere, to our environment. Yes, yes. Any new listener should, you know, get the Southpaw on your RSS and donate to the Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. <laughs>